This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory in Ruskin, Florida. Thanks for joining us. My guest today, Ken Jones, is a well-known and highly respected water feature and water garden designer who has been in the aquatic landscape business for over 30 years. Ken has been involved in many aspects of the aquarium hobby throughout his career and his projects have won Designer Showcase Awards from national trade magazines, including Water Garden News. Ken also writes for many of the hobby and trade publications and produces and hosts his own television show. Most recently, Ken began hosting the Prince of Ponds podcast on Pet Life Radio and founded the Ornamental Water Feature Academy. Join us as we discuss the ins and outs of water gardens with Ken Jones. We'll be right back after these messages. Molly, here's your dinner. Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Ken Jones, host of the Prince of Ponce podcast, starting up on PetLifeRadio.com and head of the Ornamental Water Feature Academy online. Hi, Ken. It's great having you on the show. Hi, Roy. It's a pleasure to be here, really. Well, I like starting these podcasts with uh, kind of a little get-to-know-you section, so uh, let's get personal. Before we start talking about uh, a little more water garden information, you've had a really interesting kind of early life and biography in your career. You talked about starting the Ecology Club, I guess, working with vets and pet sitting. Now, how did all of those interesting events lead you to get interested in fish, aquariums, and water gardens? Well, during my teen years, I worked for veterinarians and into my 20s for about 10 years. And uh, during that time, I did start a pet sitting service, which back then was kind of a new thing. It was a bit of a novel experiment that uh, actually went very well. I, I built up quite a, a clientele and, and ended up selling that business. So that was my first uh, experience with business. And um, as far as getting into aquariums, it probably started with my sister when I was just a kid. I don't know, maybe six years old or something. My older sister had an aquarium in her bedroom, and it always seemed like something really kind of magical to me, really special. I just always was attracted to aquariums, and then uh, I've kept them most of my life. Even in my teens, when I I got out on my own, it wasn't long before I had my first aquarium set up. So what was your first aquarium set up? And if you remember, maybe it's going to be hard to remember, and and also your first water garden, what were the features of those? (laughs) 
Water gardens and ponds never really interested me in my youth much. I didn't know much about them. I hadn't been around them very much. I can't remember what my first aquarium was. What I remember, first of all, really, I somehow came across someone that had three 20-gallon tanks all up. Uh, they were all on one stand, and somehow I got those. <laughs> and that's what I remember. I had those for many years, uh, all three aquariums set up, uh, usually in my living room. And uh, I had many different kinds of tropical fish in there, uh, from Oscars and Bala Sharks to, uh, to smaller, just a variety of tropical fish. I got into ponds during those years when I had the pet sitting service. I was encouraged by the local aquarium store to um, to do aquarium service. Since I was out running around town anyway with my van, they thought it would be great if I provided some aquarium service. So I agreed to give that a try, and, and that went well, too. And uh, I was doing aquarium services for, you know, for businesses around town. And uh, that led to opening a custom aquarium showroom, a center for our service, the showroom was beautiful. I mean, thanks to the beautiful tanks, we had a lot of very interesting and, and unusual aquariums. And And I had a contractor came in one day and said, this is amazing. This is really beautiful stuff. If you can do stuff like this, he was a landscape contractor. He said, if you could do something like this outdoors, I've got a list of customers for you. And uh, always looking for a new business, I thought, here's an opportunity. You know, maybe I ought to find out something about filtration. He indicated that was his biggest um, concern and problem for his customers was was filtering these ponds that he had been building uh, all his life. And he felt there was a real market for a good filter system for fish ponds. So I, I decided to research that and find out how it was being done and how maybe I could do it better. And that's how I got into doing outdoor water gardens. I started working with him. He taught me stuff about concrete and uh, decorative rock work and plumbing and I went to a plumbing course to learn about uh, using PVC in plumbing systems and swimming pool systems. I studied swimming pool systems because I knew we needed larger filtration than what was generally available in the market at that time. And uh, I thought we could probably modify some filter systems uh, from the swimming pool industry and have them work for fish ponds. And that went really well. That kind of launched me into the, into the pond business. So with some of that kind of the early year experience before you, you know, got to where you are now, were there any particularly hard lessons you learned about the business? Nothing stands out as particularly hard. It was all very foreign to me. I mean, I had, and until uh, Bob came along, the, the landscape contractor, I had no experience with landscaping or concrete work. That seemed really foreign to me. It really helps to have a mentor in anything you're doing. And Bob was my mentor, and that went really well. Bob Hinckley uh, uh, is responsible for me getting into water gardens. And I just uh, combined uh, what I already had learned about design and aesthetic concerns, you know, with the construction expertise it takes to build water gardens and focusing on the filtration because that seemed to be the number one concern for pond owners was keeping their water clear. And I didn't see anything on the market, everything that was sold through aquariums. See, back then, uh, there weren't even water garden stores to speak of. All your pond supplies and uh, know-how came through uh, pet stores and aquarium stores. And it was kind of a, you know, it was a, a real specialty and a bit of a fringe area that hadn't built up uh, much of an industry yet. And uh, the fundamental thing was this. I, I felt if people were going to spend money on a filter system, they had a right to be guaranteed certain kinds of results. And if somebody wants a filter system to keep their water clear, then you should be able to provide a system that keeps their water clear. And right. uh, I really believed in that. And, and, so, uh, and I couldn't find any product out there that would give me that guarantee. So I came up with my own. I called it a progressive pond filter system. I used different swimming pool components put together in a series that would take water progressively and filter out the big stuff. And I... Um, 
took that stuff and um, took it out with a, a coarse filtration, then put it through a, a more fine filtration and ultimately filtered down to five microns using diatomaceous earth because that let me take out single-celled algae. Okay, great. And I definitely want to talk a little bit more about filtration shortly. So we may as well get started and start talking about the ponds and, and water gardens a little bit more in detail. For folks who've never had a water garden, how would you say these differ inherently from aquariums and what are some kind of major considerations for them that they need to think about? Well, size is certainly... <laughs> A big difference. And it's an advantage, generally speaking. Like anyone who's kept aquariums knows that larger aquariums tend to be a little more easy to maintain. They're more stable. Uh, you tend to have fewer uh, problems with them. Uh, it's true of your ponds as well. Larger ponds are more stable. The temperatures fluctuate less. They tend to stay cooler. And these are all advantages in keeping a pond healthy and water clear. These things help. So size is... Um, is a big thing. The bigger the pond, the better, as far as I'm concerned. In fact, I, I've met <laughs> a lot of pond owners, and I've never met anyone who wanted their pond to be smaller. Everybody I, I meet, if they were to have another pond, they'd tell you they'd like to make it bigger. So um, I encourage people to make a pond as big as they uh, can fit in their budget and in their space. Well, kind of following up on that, what is the smallest pond you've ever built, and, and also the largest? <laughs> well, the smallest one, I'd say, would be about the size of a bathtub. And then, I, of course, I built some waterfalls that were pondless, where there's no pond at all, or at least it's hidden from view underneath the, basically in front of and underneath the waterfall. So there's no pond at all. I guess that's, that's pretty small. Those are built for the sound effects and ease of maintenance. If you have no pond or if it's, you know, hidden in a reservoir underneath, it's uh, very easy to maintain. And yet you can still get the benefit of a, of a waterfall for atmosphere. But for larger ponds, really lakes and lagoons, I did a lot of work on commercial for apartment complexes and that kind of thing that had uh, lagoon systems that went throughout the complex. So uh, several acre feet of water involved in some of those. And I built some of those from scratch. I built a, um, a dog swimming uh, pond that was uh, about an acre in size. And it was uh, built specifically to make it easy for these arthritic dogs to get in and out of the water. The owners wanted uh, them to exercise in water, knowing that it would be good for them with uh, their arthritis problem. And I've built uh, swimming ponds for people that were, um, you'd have to call them small lakes. So, um, yeah, real small to real big. Okay. Yeah. Now for the you know fish ponds, what are your thoughts on you know above or or below ground? Is there any uh, difference? Is there any benefit or you know good or bad? Well, you know, first of all, some people that want a fish pond are very much into their fish. You know, we're usually talking koi here. Koi are wonderful fish. They're big. They're beautiful. They're colorful and they're personable. I love koi. That was one of my biggest surprises, I think, in getting into water gardens was experiencing how much fun koi are to keep and have in your life. I know what it's like to get very attached to a koi. <laughs> and uh, I think they're wonderful. An ideal koi pond puts practicality above aesthetics. Most of the work I did was very aesthetic driven. It was, uh, I tended to work with um, some high end landscape architects with some high end clientele. They were looking for a really beautiful and, you know, a big wow factor in their landscape. But I recognize that koi breeders generally, you know, have different priorities and the safety of their koi is utmost. So an ideal koi pond is, you know, probably going to have a wall around it that's uh, two to three feet tall. 
just to make sure those koi can't jump out and dry out on the pavement. Whereas a water garden isn't going to have that. It's going to have decorative rock work around much of the perimeter, perhaps, but it's not going to have a wall. A koi pond that's built for koi will probably have an awning or some kind of shade cloth draped across the top to keep uh, the sunlight uh, reduced, you know, so they have less uh, algae problems in cooler water and so forth, which is good for koi. Koi can get sunburned. A water garden never has that. So with a water garden, we're making compromises. A water garden is a mix of things. You want a good fish pond, but it's not going to be an excellent koi pond. And you're trading off some of these things for the aesthetics. You have a mixture of plants and fish, both in a water garden. Whereas a koi pond, you generally don't put plants in there. Because koi, you know, they can eat the plants, they can uproot the plants. Plants can be a nuisance. There's ways to guard against that. But uh, if you're interested in breeding koi and showing koi, you're probably not going to have water plants in your pond. So there's these kinds of differences. Now, on your show, you discuss use of pond liners versus concrete. And I know you, you sort of prefer one, maybe a little more than the other. Can you kind of review the pluses and minuses for someone that's you know trying to look at something to base their pond on? Yeah, that's a big subject. And uh, <laughs> you're coming up with some great questions here, Roy. Uh, the um, liners have come very much into favor in recent years. And there's some very practical reasons for that. I feel that some of the claims for liner ponds are overstated. Some contractors will tell you they're the best way to build a pond, and that's not my experience. Uh, Liners have their place. There are certain types of ponds where a liner is the best choice when you consider your budget and construction methods, timetables. There's a lot of things that go into deciding which way to go. But generally speaking, I prefer a steel-reinforced concrete pond. If you're talking about a a water garden, something that's going to be beautiful, aesthetically pleasing, as well as practical to maintain, I prefer concrete as the way to go because it's durable. It's easier to do decorative rock work on and around it. Uh, Maintenance, if it's designed well, in my opinion, that means vertical walls uh, and a clean bottom to it. It's going to be easy to maintain. It's easier to plumb, get your circulation jets in and your, and your plumbing for your, um, your intakes and so forth. So, You're a big concrete fan. So for uh, maybe an average size pond that's concrete, and I know that it's going to vary depending on a lot of factors, but what would your you know, average kind of cost for that be? I guess I can throw out some ranges as far as cost. Yeah, that's uh, you know, a, a concrete shell is going to cost more than a, than a liner. Liners are, are often sold through aquarium stores and water garden outlets as um, sometimes in kits. They call them pond kits. And I think it's a great way, if you're not sure you want a pond, and you want to try it as an experiment, and therefore you want to keep the cost as low as possible and so forth, then it makes sense to do it that way. But you've got to realize that it's probably not permanent. It's another thing about a concrete pond. If it's done right, it's going to last a lifetime. I generally like to say that a water garden, a well bit water garden, should be built with technology similar to a swimming pool and your water maintenance is going to be similar to an aquarium. I often describe the budget when someone's thinking about a water garden as uh, one-third for the filtration system, filtration and circulation, and I call it the life support system because it's more than just filtration. That's an important part and that can really reduce your maintenance and increase your enjoyment of a pond if you have a good life support system. About a third is going to be construction, you know, the shell itself, the plumbing, the rock work, that kind of thing. And about a third is maybe aesthetic considerations because there's a lot of aesthetic options that you have with a water garden, such as underwater lighting. You don't have to have that, but sure is beautiful. 
You can have uh, underwater lighting on your waterfalls or streams or other uh, decorative water features that you add to your water garden. I'm a big believer in coloring your coping. <laughs> the mortar that's used to hold rock work together, the mortar that's uh, put around to create a shoreline on your water garden, that can be colored and textured. A lot of contractors don't do that. To me, it doesn't make sense. You're trying to simulate nature, so you want your, your shoreline to look natural. And to do that with concrete, uh, it doesn't make sense to leave it looking like gray concrete. So uh, coloring and texturing mortar is another optional thing that, that greatly increases the beauty of the water garden. So basically a third, a third, a third. An average backyard water garden, that's, of course, it ranges a lot. Yeah, but I, yeah, I'd say eight. Eight to 12 feet, maybe eight feet wide, 12 feet long would be an average water garden for an average residential backyard. And you can spend um, doing that with, you know, anything for your basic water garden uh, these days, maybe $10,000. But you could spend 20000 if you did, you know, with the waterfalls and the colored and textured mortar and, and that kind of thing, what I call decorative coping. There's a lot of options that are nice to have on a pond, such as surface skimmers, automatic fillers, power drain. These all, of course, add to the cost, but they're wonderful to have. Right. You know, that's definitely reasonable when you, you see some of the ponds and how beautiful they are. So it was kind of of interest maybe to get for folks that are considering, you know, having a really nice pond. Well, I actually have a, obviously a, a quite a few more questions, but let's take a break and then we'll continue our discussions with Ken Jones, the Prince of Ponds, right after these messages from our sponsors. It's designerpetsweaters.com, hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Ken Jones, the Prince of Ponds. So, Ken, we were talking a little bit about you know concrete and um, some of the considerations. You mentioned retrofitting swimming pools. I think I've heard you discuss that on your podcast. Uh, is it easier? Do you like retrofitting swimming pools? Or I'm assuming it's, it's a more tricky thing when you want to make a swimming pool back into a water garden. Well, that's an interesting area of discussion because I, I don't see it done very often. And uh, I often wonder why not, because I've done several uh, swimming pools that we turned into water gardens where the new owners weren't into swimming, didn't want to be maintaining a swimming pool, messing with the chemicals, all that kind of stuff. And again, the basic structure of a swimming pool is such that it makes a perfectly good water garden. To have it look like a water garden, you need to make some changes. The average swimming pool is a little shy on its circulation system. They, you know, they might have one or two return jets, but sometimes it, it'd be nice to have a more robust circulation for the benefit of fish and plants in a water garden. But um, yeah, basically, it's not difficult. 
you're spared the time, the trouble, and the expense of building the shell because your basic shell's there and in place. The trick is to make it look, you know, look natural. So you want to take, you know, typically we take the tile off and the concrete. Very often they have a, a formal concrete coping to a swimming pool, and we'd, we'd remove that stuff chisel all that off, jackhammer it out of there, and then put in decorative mortar with some decorative rock work and add a waterfall and uh, re-coat the uh, plaster. Uh, most of the pools out here in California are plastered, but we can uh, typically those are white or light in color, but we can um, coat those with a black masonry sealant. Not that the sealant quality is necessary so much, but the black color is very attractive for a water garden. Black has the benefit of, first of all, creates a more reflective surface on the on the surface of the water, so it picks up the blue from the sky, so that it looks bluer from a distance, and it hides debris, algae, and debris that will always be in a pond to, to some degree is far less visible. It also gives the illusion of greater depth, dark colors do. So black is a beautiful um, color to use on the bottom of a water garden. So we might coat the bottom of the pool black as well. The greater depth is not a problem. You have more water volume in a swimming pool that's converted than you would typically put into a water garden. But that's an advantage, especially if you want to raise koi. Having the extra water volume gives the, the koi a lot more space, a lot more room, and they're going to grow bigger and faster in that kind of pond. Well, that's interesting. I actually, believe it or not, I actually had, uh, I've got a pool at home and I had let it go for a couple months and it got almost uh, natural looking, if you know what I mean. So I, <laughs> I considered it, I seriously considered, you know, not obviously knowing, you know, I didn't know you at the time or I might have actually probably gone through with it. <laughs> I would have encouraged you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, believe it or not, I actually had a heron. Uh-huh. It got so bad that a heron was actually like hanging out. Hey, hey, hanging out to your swimming pool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was actually That's pretty stuff natural. Yeah, so that was yeah. pretty funny. So um, I guess you know we've talked about water quality, um, you know, and obviously it's real important and it's pretty fundamental. And it's you know even now with folks that have kept you know ponds and, and aquariums as well as obviously those that haven't, it's so confusing. So I guess going back to some of the things you discussed earlier, um, and I know you you had discussed sumps as well. Can you talk a little bit about maybe your current? thoughts on sumps and filters for these water gardens? Yes. Um, water quality is really important. And I really stress that a pond, uh, see, what I ran into a lot in the beginning, I was doing a lot of service of pre-existing ponds. And so there was um, a lot of situations where the pond was pretty much ignored for sometimes years. And these ponds were generally very, very dirty. They had a buildup of muck on the bottom that was anything from a few inches thick to uh, to maybe, um, gosh, a foot or more. And uh, that's potentially dangerous stuff when you have debris on the bottom of a pond like that because you get anaerobic bacteria growing there. And that's where your your foul odors come from. If a pond has an odor problem, very often it's from the anaerobic bacteria that produce methane, ammonia, and other toxic chemicals that are not good for fish. And so uh, it's very important to keep a pond clean. And uh, I find generally that among the general public and even landscapers, they're a little mystified by ponds. They're a little bit nervous around them, uh, not too sure how to maintain them. And they're surprisingly similar to other things in landscaping. I mean, the plants require some pruning and some fertilizing and, and repotting from time to time like almost any other plants do. And uh, as far as the water is concerned, it's important to keep that water clean and, and to put some, do a little, some water changes, uh, get some fresh water in there from time to time. 
prevent the buildup of muck and debris in the bottom of a pond, just like you would want to prevent the buildup of debris in your backyard or your patio, you know. So a good basic maintenance and husbandry techniques are required for a pond, just like almost anywhere else. So that's important. And that water quality is the key, as, as you know, <laughs> you know so well, is really key to fish health. So that involves uh, getting that debris out of the water, not letting that build up, like I say, some water changes, because water gets old. And you need to, if you want to maintain water quality, you have to get some fresh water in there from time to time. Circulation and aeration are important. Adding oxygen to that water, again, especially if you have fish, that's of, uh, you know, that's of importance. And I guess in terms of the filters, because there's so many different types of filters, like do you have a, a preference with regard to you know, what kind of filters you use? I know you mentioned in the past years ago that you had kind of used a series of pool filters, but what's kind of your uh, favorite sort of type now? Well, I still believe in, in mechanical filtration. I think mechanical filtration gives me control over water clarity. One of the points I like to stress is that water quality is for the fish. Fish don't care whether the water's clear or not. In fact, they might even be a little more at ease in green or cloudy water. But clarity is for people. We like clear water. Clear water looks more refreshing to most people. Now, there's a small percentage of the public that has no problem with natural, what they call natural-looking murky water. It's fine fine with them. So they would have liked my pool back in the day then. Yeah. Well, yeah, depending on... uh, (laughs) How murky your water was, how much uh, planktonic algae you had in there. Water can turn very green and can get really thick, like they call it pea soup. And it's no fun to have. Not for most people. They don't want that. So uh, water clarity is important. And then we use filtration to get water clarity. The nice thing about mechanical filtration, it's going to give you both. You know, And uh, so if you have filters that are big enough to remove that debris and to be able to filter out the big stuff that, you know, bits of leaves and bug parts and that kind of thing that always you always find in a pond, on down to microscopic, down to five micron filtration where you can actually filter out algae cells, you end up with crystal clear water. And I like having that kind of control. So I'm a big fan of robust mechanical filtration. And in the process, these mechanical filters also become biological filters if you run them 24 hours a day. And biological filtration is beneficial you know, in any body of water, in ponds, just like aquariums. So uh, typically my systems will have two-speed pumps, and I run it on low speed most of the time and kick it up on high speed maybe a few hours a day if necessary to maintain that clarity, but uh, then drop it back down on low speed, and you're maintaining circulation 24 hours a day through your filter media. You have plenty of biological filtration going on there too. I wouldn't recommend any particular brand over another, but... um, I go into that in a little more detail. At the Academy, I have articles on every one of these subjects. And, and what I don't have articles on yet, I will have. I'm working on that. That's a, a project in process right now. But filtration is a big subject, and there are a lot of options. The other thing I'd mention is UV light. UV light units, uh, they're sometimes called filtration or filters. They're not filters, but they, they do treat the water. And UV radiation of the water is helpful, is beneficial. It can help you control uh, pathogenic uh, organisms in the water, bugs that will you know, create disease and, and make your fish sick. Uh, you can uh, zap them by circulating your water through those UV lights. And it works the same way on the algae cells. You can dramatically reduce planktonic, that's the free-floating single-celled algae, by uh, running it through an ultraviolet light. And I know UV lights have become a lot more common in ponds uh, in recent years because uh, they, they do good. They do good, and I, I like to see one on every, every pond. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about the fish now. You, you discussed them a little bit earlier, and definitely most people in the U.S. are looking or thinking about koi and goldfish when they consider um, fish in their ponds or, or you know, water gardens. Are there any other species, or pretty much are those really the main ones? And as a follow-up, I guess, how do you decide when you're working with someone how many fish and what size they should get? Well, that's a... Uh Another big, wonderful subject. <laughs> Certainly, koi and goldfish are by far and away the most common fish put in ponds. Now, I have built ponds for people who wanted a game fish pond. I built one once in a, for a home that wanted a game fish pond so their scout troop could go game fishing in their own backyard. And we did that. <laughs> we built that for them, a very natural and beautiful looking pond. That one we did eight feet deep uh, so they could put game fish in it. But uh, generally speaking, far and away, people want goldfish and koi. And usually the pond comets are the goldfish of choice. Now, some people like to put fancy goldfish in their ponds, and uh, you can do that. The fancy varieties of goldfish are a little more temperamental. You probably have to pay more attention to them and their feeding and the water quality and so forth. Koi and goldfish are generally very robust fish. They're very hardy and they put up with a lot of bad water quality. <laughs> Not always, to, of course, usually to their detriment to some degree, but they're hardy fish. There's no reason to be afraid of koi or goldfish. And uh, koi is, everyone knows, I believe, that, you know, get big. They get up to two, three feet long. Uh, I'd say 18 inches to 24 inches is the most common size. The size is influenced by the size of the pond they're kept in. But um, they get good-sized. And uh, if you have koi in your life, you're going to end up naming them and knowing their personalities. And um, they're a lot of fun. It's amazing. And, and, of course, the color varieties that come in and the patterns and the scale types that they come in are just amazing and wonderful, beautiful fish. So my favorite is the classic water garden. I've done a lot of different specialty ponds. But a classic water garden with uh, waterfalls and koi and water lilies and water plants all together creates what is for me a, a real piece of paradise. So how do you, I guess, when you're working with them, getting back to the to how many, you know, which is a huge uh, question, how many? obviously. Yeah, how many and how, you know, yeah. how big. Yeah. Let me say a little more about that, too, because uh, koi are often thought of as being extremely expensive fish, and some of them are very valuable. And if you're into showing koi, that's a whole other world. But for the pond owner, for the homeowner that just wants a beautiful water feature, there's a decorative quality of koi. I call them decorative quality. <laughs> They're low-cost koi. You can buy them for 2 or $3 as youngsters, you know, a couple inches to two, three inches in size. And they grow quickly. They grow well, on average six inches a year. So they don't have to be expensive as far as how many. That's, uh, of course, totally dependent on just how big your, your, your water garden is and what your water volume is. And it will vary depending on the weather. You have to consider the extremes. Uh, cold uh, somewhat, but a lot more in the summer. Some of these ponds, like out here in California, we have some hot areas out here in California. And those ponds get very warm in the summer, and when they get warm, they don't hold as much oxygen. So you have to be concerned about, you know, are the fish going to be stressed at these extreme weather conditions where they're not going to get enough oxygen? Do you have circulation jets on your pond? Do you have waterfalls or streams flowing into your pond? These are all things that affect how robust your filter system is, going to affect the capacity of your pond. So it can vary. For that 8 to 12 foot pond, uh, average water garden for the average residential house that I mentioned earlier, you know, you could easily have 20, 30 koi. You might start out with 40 or more, but as they get older, you're going to want to thin some out. 
Now, sometimes fate will do that for you, unfortunately. But if not, and you have good luck, you, as you raise them up, you're going to want to keep your favorite ones, and you might find new homes for the others, just so that you don't, you know, get too many. Again, what are your goals? Are you raising fish that you want to breed and show, or are you just have a decorative water garden and you just want some beautiful koi out there? So it can vary a lot. I would say take the advice of whoever's helping you with uh, building your pond or maintaining your pond or certainly those supplying you with the fish and plants will help guide you on that. But like I say, you've got to consider these different variables, but you want a few uh, and probably more than a few and you probably want more than you should have. <laughs> so kind of following up on that with um, feeding, of course, it's a huge variable with a lot of people. Do you have any specific recommendations on feeding, you know, feeding fish in the ponds? Again, if you have high-quality koi that you may have paid um, hundreds of dollars for, even as youngsters, or as adults, maybe thousands of dollars for, you're going to want to give them the best quality koi food that you can. And commercial koi foods, uh, Hikari is known for producing high-quality foods. You're going to want to spoil them with their food because that's very important to the health of the fish. But, you know, for a lot of decorative ponds and uh, commercial ponds that I've worked on and so forth, um, Keep in mind, koi will always supplement their diet with what they find in the environment. They nibble here and there. They're grazing the bottom of the pond. They pick up insects and bits of algae and leaves and such that they nibble on. They'll they'll nibble on, the, some of them will uh, nibble on your water plants. So they kind of supplement their own diet with a variety that's probably very good for them, certainly very natural. But they would should be fed Again, depending on the time of year, in the winter, you're not going to be feeding at all. In the summer, you could feed two or three times a day. No more than they're going to eat, just like a tropical fish aquarium, no more than they're going to eat in, in just a few minutes. You don't want any leftover food to decay in the pond. They're fun to feed. Feeding's not a chore. Feeding keeps you engaged in your pond and, and, and with your fish. They're a lot of fun to feed. So that's a, a very fun chore to have. I think that's probably why a lot of times people overfeed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exactly right, yes. yes. Uh, with your pond comets, a lot of ponds go without anybody feeding the fish at all. They just find enough in the pond to get by on their own, and they do fine. But supplemental feeding with pellets is fine to do, especially in the summer when the water's warmer and they're growing faster and all of that. Okay. Well, we're getting close to running out of time. I wanted to maybe one quick question about plants. Now, water lilies, as you mentioned, are really, really popular. What are maybe basic requirements for keeping water lilies in a water garden? Well, to begin with, there's two general varieties of water lilies, your hardies and your tropicals. Tropicals will not survive the winter months in cold climates. In a lot of places, you'd have to bring the tropical water lilies in their tubs indoors for the winter. That's more than most people want to do. Here in California, I recommend primarily hardy water plants and hardy uh, variety of, of lilies. Those go dormant in the winter and come back in the spring, and they survive our winters perfectly well. And then you can supplement with tropicals if if your budget allows. And I love water lilies, and, and tropical water lilies are the best. They're the biggest, the most interesting colors and shapes, and the, they have uh, wonderful scents, many of them smell great. So uh, tropicals are fun to have, and you may just simply want to replace them every year. 
you know, okay. so that you can have them during the summer months. They're not difficult. Uh, lilies are not difficult. They're kind of like your pond fish. They're pretty darn hardy, but they do require a little care to do their best. And if you want to promote flowering on your water lilies, it's important to fertilize them during the summer months and to repot them once a year. Give them fresh soil because that soil tends to get washed out over time. And after a couple of years, you got a pot full of sand and rocks in, in a lot of cases. Also, the roots, uh, they can get root bound. I've come across many older ponds where the lilies were really hurting and not putting out the flowers or the foliage they could be. So like other plants, if you care for them, groom them a little bit, repot them once a year, give them some fertilizer, and you're going to have beautiful, beautiful flowers and lilies in your pond. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, and uh, I definitely learned a lot today. I'm looking forward to having you back, of course. Can you tell our listeners real briefly a little bit about your podcast, uh, Prince of Ponds, and also the uh, Ornamental Water Feature Academy? Yes, thanks, uh, Dr. Roy. I appreciate it. Well, The Prince of Ponds is my podcast about ponds. It's a production of the Ornamental Water Feature Academy, which I started um, on the Internet this year. Its uh, membership is not open to the public yet. It's still under construction. But you can go to ornamentalwaterfeatureacademy.com and find a lot of good articles that talk about a lot of the great questions you brought up today and, and much, much more. And there'll be more and more articles posted there as time goes on. It's my intention the Academy uh, become the uh, kind of a central meeting place for everybody in the ornamental water feature industry to share information, to provide uh, articles and interviews and resources. Uh, if you need to find someone to do, a, you have a certain idea for a fountain or a water garden uh, in your part of the, the country, um, I expect to have resources there where you'll find out just who the experts in that field in that area are that can help you with those kinds of things. So it's meant to provide all kinds of assistance. And one of those, like I said, is the library with the articles. The other is the uh, the podcasts called uh, Prince of Ponds. And uh, you can get to those podcasts at princeofponds.com. We'll take you to the academy where the podcasts are kept and are available. They're free. And uh, I encourage people to check it out. And also on PetLifeRadio.com, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. PetLifeRadio.com. And, and I have a new podcast coming up for Pet Life Radio um, called uh, Pet Tech. And uh, that'll be uh, available beginning about the middle of February. And there we'll be talking about pet products that uh, have a, a high-tech side to them. I think there'll probably be a lot of aquarium and pond gear included in that. But it's also for, for dogs and cats and all pets, birds. We have uh, a lot of more and more techie products for pets. And it's a very, uh, I think it'll be a very interesting uh, podcast. So I'd say be on the lookout for that at Pet Life Radio coming up very soon. Sounds great. Well, thanks again, Ken. Really appreciate our conversation. And also thanks to our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Please be sure to check out Ken's web pages. Links will be on his Aquarimania bio page as well as on uh, the websites that he mentioned. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarimania blog on Pet Life Radio. You should find pictures from past episodes and can ask questions or make comments. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, please feel free to email me at drroy, that's D-R-R-O-Y, at PetLifeRadio.com, drroy at PetLifeRadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. Until next time, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and if you are considering a water garden for your home, be sure to tune into Ken Jones' podcast and keep an eye out for his website. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs>